Well, good morning, church. How are you? Uh, when I got up, I thought maybe I was leaving with the children. I didn't know what I was about to do there. It's great, though. It's wonderful to see children and to see how a church family diverse in age as you are and that you're doing as well as you are during this major pandemic period. I must say that we try at the State Board of Missions to stay connected with those across the state, and we have been pleased and pleasantly surprised that our churches are doing well despite this now almost one year of declared emergency in our country. Now, some people may say it's overplayed. Some people may say it's under underemphasized. I would just have to tell you that I have tried to call everyone who is a pastor or family or a staff person that I knew of call or text or contact them and there have been some sad 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 stories across our state so if you have experienced covid and you have done well thank god doubly for it because there are those who didn't do so well i could give you an obituary list and i will not be that morbid this morning because this ought to be a day of what i would simply call transitional celebration we thank God for what Corey Horton has done here at Elkdale. And then you look to the future with an anticipation of what God is going to do for you, through you, and with you as you serve the Lord in a new era, a new time. I was talking to Guy Anderson this morning. Guy and I have been friends for decades. In fact, I was trying to remember how old I was when I first met him. Now, he's a good bit older than I am. And uh, I was about 19, maybe 20 years of age when I first met him. But we've seen through the years, and as some of you, vast changes in all kinds of ways, not only in our culture, but in our particular church life. You're going to go through a change now, but it's not something that God is not prepared for, and it's not something that you are not prepared for, because the church has seen transitions before. But let me just remind you this morning that God always is going to use His people, those who are faithful to Him. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He's always going to be with us. And what we need to do is take every day at a time, every step of the way, walk in faithfulness with Him. I was toying with the idea, I shouldn't say toying, I was deliberating with the idea of what to preach to you this morning. I must admit I'm a bit rusty. Uh, pastors now do not have outside guests must in, much in this pandemic period, and, and so I've been doing my work in a whole lot different way, much like some others have been doing. But as I considered this morning a topic, I came here just thrilled with it until I sat here. And then I began to experience what I thought, and this rarely happens, what I thought was, nope, that is not what you, where you need to go today. Guy asked me, he said, since you haven't been consistently preaching every Sunday, are you going to preach two hours? <laughs> no, we have two services. I may end up preaching 15 minutes because of that particular thing. Now, if you've uh, been wearing masks, I want to tell you, masks and I do not get along with each other. I have every kind of mask that has been produced. 
I had the disaster relief mask that went around the back of my head and my head and the back part of my head and the front part of my head were coming together. I could not wear that. So I ordered all kinds of KN95s. And that's what one of the, this is. I have one like Guy was wearing a moment ago that has a filter in it. And with every single one of them, I feel like I'm chewing on some kind of synthetic or cotton something or other in my mouth. And I, I and also have railroad tracks on my face. You could get to Louisville by following my face. Uh, it looked like just a train track. But in the midst of all of this, I've asked myself, what is our motivation as Christians? Hey, you could ask yourself that. Maybe we don't ponder motivation enough. Uh, we have people who are motivational speakers, and they remind us. And I've gone to those motivational rallies, and I've heard people just, it was like a cheerleading rally, and you get all pumped up, and then I walk out of the room, and I ask myself, what are we motivated to do? That's a good question. What motivates us and what are we motivated to do? Now, I don't think, I've come to this conclusion after a long number of years of ministry, forgive me for being a Neanderthal, but I've gone through a long period of ministry. And I can tell you that guilt is not a motivator. Not a good motivator. I have seen people try to guilt others into doing something they think they need to do, that the others need to do. And I've, it, it, it's synonymous with shaming somebody, shaming in, them into doing it. And there is a preaching style that I grew up hearing where there was a sense of shame, that shame on you for not doing this, shame on you for not doing that. doesn't really resonate very well not long-term at least. And then there are some who are motivated by greed. We don't have to be reminded of that. Whatever we read, and I've done some fasting on television news. I read my news now off an app. I don't know about you, but I've got enough problems in stomach digestion to have to listen to all that, especially when everyone seems to be angry. So guilt, greed, those are not motivators for us. They're not godly motivations. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is what I landed on a moment ago. And I must say, I've not plowed through these verses in a very long time. But I want you to just look at verse 14. Paul is being, in a sense, autobiographical here. Remember now, Paul was, if you want to talk about him a little bit... He was the one who had had the equivalence of an Ivy League education. He was well-educated. He was steeped not only in Judaism, but Phariseeism. He knew a lot about what it meant to be a legalist. He knew a lot about what it meant to try to please the leaders of the temple. But all of that was to naught. He, he, if you read Philippians 3, he says that's just nothing. It's a nothing burger. It means absolutely nothing. What, what is really meaningful, what really matters, is what Christ has done for me and what he wants me to do for him. So verse, you've had maybe the time to read. I'm reading out of the New King James Bible. 
I, I, I still encounter people who are King James only. There are a plethora of modern translations. I like most all of them. I'll tell you, it's not easy to memorize those. I find myself memorizing something like this a whole lot better. I'm talking about scripture memorization. I've not memorized all this. But look at verse 14. He says, what is our motivation? He answers that question. For the love of Christ constrains, compels, or motivates us because we judge this. If one, capital O, if one died for all, then all died. We died through Christ. And he died for all that those who live, live no longer for themselves. Not living greedily, not trying to guilt people. We're not living for ourselves, but we're living for him who died for them and rose again. Now, if you want to know the essence of the gospel, there are two good places. Right here and also in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. And somebody want to talk about what the gospel is? The gospel is Jesus and what he's done for us. He came into this world, if you will, in the cradle. God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. He died on the cross. So you have a cradle, a cross, and a crown because... Then he rose from the dead and ascended to glory. Now that's the motivation. Not guilt, not greed, not any other, all, any other carnal ways of motivating others or even motivating ourselves, but this is the motivation. Therefore, he says in verse 16, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, that is, we came to know Him, we are human. Yet now we know Him no longer. Not through our humanity, but actually through the actions of Him who is the deity. If indeed that is our motivation, what are we motivated to do? I want to spotlight just a few things real quickly. Beginning from familiar verse, verse 17. We're motivated to personify a new reality in Christ. The new reality, look at it, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and that's an important phrase Paul's used, uh, we're in Christ. Christ is in us, the hope of glory, but we're also in him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation and old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The new creation is really kind of hard to define except just this. We were created, but also we realize that we were created as sinful human beings. When Christ comes into our lives, we become a new creation. Now, that doesn't mean we have cosmetic surgery. That doesn't mean we become six inches taller. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden we can play NFL football. All of those are just earthly things. What he's talking about, we become a new creation because we now are in Christ and becoming like Christ and one day we'll live with Christ in heaven. But while we're here on earth, we live with a new reality that we are in Christ Jesus. The one thing 
people as Christians should never forget is your conversion experience. You see, the longer you serve him, the sweeter he may be, but the more stale we may become. If you cannot revisit your conversion experience and remember what it was like to become a new creation in Christ, then you really are missing out on what it means to stay fresh as a Christian. We have a new reality. We personify a new reality in Christ Jesus. We are a new creation, and only God can create, remember. He is the only one who can create something out of nothing, and He's the only one who can take the mess of our lives and make a message out of it. Well, there's a second thing we're compelled to do. Listen to this. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself, through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's, this love compels us to personify a new reality that is a new creation. This love compels us to personify reconciliation with Christ. We are to personify that by being ministers of reconciliation. There's no way we can be representing him by being ministers of reconciliation unless we have been reconciled with Christ. Now, what is reconciliation? It, it's a big, tough word in a lot of ways, and yet, in some ways, we can just put it like this. It's taking two seemingly ir irreconcilable people and bringing them together. That's what we would call reconciliation in human terms. But... This is about taking the perfect God and taking imperfect people and reconciling them. Now, how do you go about doing that? Well, you're not going to go about doing that by going to a motivational seminar. You're not going to go about that just by being a good theological student, perhaps, or trying to be a self-taught, if you will, biblical scholar. No, it means you understand that the perfect God looks upon imperfect people, but he prepares a perfect way to be reconciled. And this verse said it. It is through Jesus Christ. The longer we're Christians, the more we tend to build up an encrustation of, I guess, self-reliance. We think the world ought to be just exactly like us because we are who we are. And we tend to kind of be around people who are resembling us. They reflect the same values to some extent or most extent. And therefore, we don't understand that there's a whole world out, outside of us which has not been reconciled to Christ. Reconciled to God through Christ. Therefore, there's a sense in which God has called us, anointed us as believers to be ministers of reconciliation. Now, if you get your mind around that, it will scare you to death. God has taken imperfect people who are in sin, no matter how great or less we may put it in human standards, sin is sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Taking imperfect people 
and anointed us, called us to personify reconciliation in this world, to be a walking advertisement for Jesus Christ and the reconciling power he has to save people. Now, if that doesn't shock you when you think about it, it would almost be like someone coming into this room right here, representing whatever presidential administration you want to choose, and saying, you are going to be Secretary of State, you are going to be Secretary of Defense, you're going to be Attorney General, and we all would say to ourselves, what qualifications do we have? None except we've been reconciled in Christ. You cannot share with the world what you haven't experienced in your life. Therefore, we take that pure message of reconciliation, how God is able, like no one else, to bring warring parties together, to bring imperfect people together, to reconcile sinners to a loving, perfect God. And yes, take it down further, if you will, application, to take people who may well be in the same church but have a total disdain for each other, and that reconciliation in Christ helps them overcome their differences, and they come to know Jesus Christ and become a minister of reconciliation. It may mean... A, a, a marriage falling apart on the verge of a divorce and because they have been reconciled in Christ they can be reconciled with each other. It can take a divided church filled with conflict and because we have been reconciled in Jesus Christ we can be brought together in the reconciliation of Christ. We are the personification of reconciliation. We're ministers of reconciliation. Well, what else does this love motivate us to do? This familiar verse to me, at least for a lot of us, verse 19. Well, that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing trespasses to them. That, that means we're not really having to live with our sin. It's not imputed to us. He's going to impute something else to us. His reconciliation. And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Amplifying the minister of reconciliation also has the word of reconciliation. The minister who has been, the person who has been reconciled in Christ has also been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, what is that next motivation? What are we called to do? Well, we're called, if you will, to be the personification of the representation for Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, we beg you, we appeal to you through we implore, implore you, beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When, you, when you're reconciled to God, you become a representative for him. We're personified to be an ambassador for Christ. I, I can remember as a royal ambassador now, that's been eons ago, 
In fact, so long ago, I caught the tail end of this movement, the WMU was in charge of it. We didn't have male figures leading us at that particular time. That transition happened while I was in RAs. All of a sudden, somebody woke up and said, it might be good to have some men leading some boys. And that was a good transition. The WMU did a great part. Much of the formative years of my life, I have been influenced by godly ladies who have been committed to help children come to know Christ. But when we're ambassadors, think about a moment. The president has, he appoints, every new administration does this. They toss out the old and put in the new because they want someone who represents them. But you may disagree with the political philosophy. That's just the way it is. And so I, I will tell you this. It may not surprise you at all that the, the plum job of being an ambassador from the Secretary of State, from the President, is to be the ambassador in Great Britain, to be at the court of St. James. You might wonder why. Well, one thing, when you're an ambassador for the United States at, the, at Great Britain, you're reminding them we're no longer a colony of Great Britain. We, we won the war. That's one thing. And also, you don't have to learn another language in case you don't already know a language. Well, I take that back. You may have to learn some kind of other language. Like Winston Churchill said, we're divided by the same language. In other words, we speak one kind of English, you speak another kind of English. But that is supposed to be the plum job. All over the world, they're ambassadors called upon to represent the United States of America. Now, what this means is this. They're citizens of the United States, but they're in another country, living there, representing the president and his administration. But that word predated anything related to an American form of ambassadorial nature. That word came to mean an emissary, someone who speaks, that is, when he speaks, he speaks for the president, that in our terms. But this ambassador, when he speaks, he speaks imperfectly for God. God's speaking through us. God's using us to be his representatives, his ambassadors, his emissaries, spreading the good news, calling people to that reconciliation that we've been talking about. And it sometimes just thrills me and chills me to think that God would take someone who appears to be almost useless, worthless, and make them useful and worthy to represent Him. Now, we, we should never get over that. No matter who's our pastor, we have the same God. No matter what church we attend, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we have the same God. The God in Christ who's called us to represent Him in a world that is dying to know Him. They just don't know they're dying to know it. And by the way, they're dying in sin if they don't know Him. What else did the 
love of God compel us to do? Well, new reality in Christ. We had to be new creations. We are called to be the personification of reconciliation with Christ. Yes. We're called to be the personification of representation for Christ. That is the ambassadorial nature that we just talked. But look at this in verse 21. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I'll tell you this, I've been studying this verse, and I really become amazed about when I read it and study it, I learn something new about it. The love of God compels us to personify the righteousness of Christ. Notice this. This is one of the best theological descriptions of what Christ has done in the Bible. You could put this verse alongside John 3.16. It's right in there. It's in the vein of John 3.16. For he, Christ, who knew no sin. Just, just think about that. A Christ who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, let me just remind you how radical and revolutionary and transformative all that is. First of all, all religions of the world, God does not come down and become flesh and dwell among sinful people. I mean, God's God. He's more remote than that. He's high, lofty, untouchable, unreachable, and essentially unavailable. But here is a God who sends His only begotten Son, and He didn't just come to the world to take a tour. He didn't come riding on a conquering army, with a conquering army on a white horse. He didn't come as some kind of general pattern. He didn't come as a dictator. He came as a cooing baby in a crib. You talk about coming to become flesh. He identified with us in that we came into this world the very same way. We all came into this world as babies. But more than that, he came in the world not just to become flesh, but this verse tells us, and this is hard to get your minds around when you think about how precious and perfect Jesus is. Jesus, who came into this world, did not know sin, but he became sin for us, that we might know the righteousness of God through him. That means Jesus went to the cross knowing that we could not handle our sins. We could not deal with our sins whatsoever. No way whatsoever. And therefore, he took that sin upon himself. He who knew no sin, and it didn't just say he took the sin, he, this is what's revolutionary. He became sin for us, that we might know the righteousness of God. Now that word righteousness is a relatively big word, and it's relatively common, but we don't really quite understand. We're still learning what it means. We could just simply say, and it's very true, 
That to be righteous with God is made, means that God has made in Christ us right with him. That's okay. That's a good way to say it. If you had to put it in a simple sentence, that's it. But there's really a deeper thing to it. If you want to know, really, the message of the Bible, old and new, it's really about the righteousness of God. Almost everywhere you look, that word just kind of pops up. And it doesn't come there just by happenstance. It comes by the inspiration of God in Scripture. Right here, he could have left it the writer Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he could have said, For he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. No. He didn't leave it there, did he? That we, putting us in the picture, might become the righteousness of God. Now, God is so holy and different from us. It, how in the world... Do we have the righteousness of God? It's been imputed. A moment ago, the re reference was in, he didn't impute trespasses or sin. No, he took them. I've got to confess, it's long enough ago I can say this, that when I was in Tuscaloosa, I got invited to do a lot of things. I prayed over everything that moved and some that didn't. I went to civic clubs and, yes, I was the last person to pray at a graduation at the University of Alabama, the very last person in 1988. And I was told not to pray in Jesus' name. Maybe that's why I was the last person who did it. I essentially prayed in Jesus' name, but I personalized it. I said, in the name of my Lord Jesus, who saved me, I make this prayer. I didn't use it to put a eye poke on anyone else. But I got called on one occasion. I didn't read my mail. I had an excellent assistant that I took with me to Montgomery, and I, I've never forgiven her for what this happened to me here, but it was my fault. I ought to read my mail. I was supposed to go to the state business functionary meeting, that is all the luminaries of business were coming to recognize the businessmen across the state. Now stupid me, I should have known that it was a black tie event. I don't know what possessed me, but I did put on a suit, I didn't put on a dark one, and it had checks in it, and it was not bold, but the tie was the most gaudy tie I owned at the time, and I threw it away after that event. I got there, and I was, on the, I was up there on the front table. Everybody's in a black tie, men, but me. And I sat there feeling like an outcast. Outcast enough that I was around that many business luminaries. But I was not dressed well. I was not dressed for the occasion. And since then, I've thought about that. You see, we're not dressed for the occasion without Christ. We're clothed in His righteousness when we come to know Him. But really, like the Old Testament says, all of our 
self-righteousness is like filthy rags. We're just wearing filthy rags. And when we come to know Christ, Paul puts it on eloquently, we put on the clothes of Christ. And it's a gift. He's given us the clothes to wear. He's dressing us up for that heavenly day when we are with him and behold him as he is. But here's the reality. If every person's born in sin and every person is a sinner, at some point they have to recognize that. And you know what? Today that's harder to do than anything. I was witnessing not long ago to a person who said, oh, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't think I'm condemned to hell. In other words, she's saying I'm not a lost sinner. And I thought, how in the world did you get that? I'll tell you how she got it. She got it from all that culture is saying. You are essentially good. And bad things happen. You may do bad things, but you're essentially good and everyone's good. And everyone, if you get to the universal view, universalism view of it, everyone is going to be with God, whatever that means. Well, that's not true. That's one of the false gospels being preached. Hear me when I say this. No person has walked on the face of this earth who was not an outright pure sinner. And no person who comes to Christ stays that way. We're saved sinners. Yes, we sin, but we're saved sinners, not lost sinners. And this morning, I just want to simply say to you, you have an opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ and have this compelling love motivating in you in this life, giving you meaning, true meaning, in a world of meaninglessness. So I'm going to invite you to stand now, and we're going to pray together. If you need to come to know Christ, there'll be... A fine staff member right up front here would be glad to welcome you. If you want to come and be a part of this church, no matter what transitions are, I can simply tell you that the greatest transition of all would be the transition to come to know Christ or to come be a part of His church. So we're going to pray, and these decisions are, are at your hearts. God is speaking to you. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you. Thank you immensely for the fact that you never leave us nor forsake us, that you save us when we call upon the name of the one who is the true Lord. We pray this prayer, Father, knowing that you still save. You're still in the saving business. We pray for those who need to come to know you, come to know you in faith and trust in him, or those who need a church home or rededicate their lives. We pray this morning will be the time. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen.